everyone. We're absolutely delighted that we have today Simon Hinrichsen coming to us from Copenhagen to talk about, among other things, the Iraqi debt restructuring of 2004 and continuing in some ways uh, to today. I got to know Simon's work because of a mutual friend who has been a guest on this podcast, Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times. And Robin sent me an email, I think it was now maybe three three years ago, saying, you should talk to this uh, grad student at LSE. He's doing some fascinating work on the Iraqi debt restructuring. And I, I was skeptical. That, you know, why are you sending me to talk to some grad student about he probably wasn't even born at the time of the Iraqi debt restructuring? Why, Robin, are you sending me down this wild goose uh, chase? But it turned out that uh, Simon's done some of the most interesting work unearthing what really happened in the Iraqi debt restructuring And there's so much in his research that I didn't know about. And I even worked on a tiny portion of that restructuring. So I'm hoping that we can get him to talk a little bit about what he found and maybe even some of the stuff that is not in his wonderful articles about this topic. So my first question to Simon is, how did you get interested in this topic. I mean, one of the puzzling aspects of this particular restructuring vis-a-vis the literature is that there's almost nothing written about it. And so, you know, if there's nothing written about it, unless you happen to work on it, you don't know about it. So I'm curious as to how you got started on the project. Thanks both uh, to you, Mitsu, and, and Mark for that very kind introduction for having me on. It's sort of a, a weird way to get to the Iraqi debt restructuring because I came to it via a research project I was doing on war reparations and how sovereign debt has been raised through history to pay for war reparations and, and large fiscal expenditures after wars. And I came around to the Iraq war reparations, which they were forced to pay after the Gulf War. And I could barely find anything about it. You had a few papers that mentioned it just when it came out in the early 90s, but then it was essentially muted in the literature. And so there wasn't really anything about it. Started to read, uh, figure out what actually happened uh, and tried to find a few papers on the restructuring and outside of some of the, the data, there wasn't really much there. Uh, except for uh, a few articles, your uh, your article with with Lee Bukite uh, amongst them, which had a, a little bit of the of the piece. So I tried to to figure out, okay, what actually happened? Can we pull a pull an interesting story together? And it ended up being a larger research uh, project, which I actually split into two. First one on how the debt arised. We'll we'll park that for now, I think, and focus on the debt restructuring, because the debt restructuring has so many of the interesting things for a historian, which means that you could really go in a multiple of ways. You have the political, 
you have the legal, you have the technical, you have the markets, you have a little bit of international political economy, uh, which meant that uh, it was actually just a, a really nice project to, to get your teeth into because it had everything, but the story hadn't really been told before. Yeah, so that's sort of how I how I came to it. Simon, can we can I jump to a topic that I think um, just if my guess is correct, we we might miss it if I don't jump to it now. But I since you mentioned the reparations question as the source of your original interest. I'm sort of fascinated by your discussion of what happens to the reparations claims in the Iraqi debt restructuring. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like they're left out, but they're simultaneously reduced. Like, can you just give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, so war reparations were introduced after uh, after the the first or after the first Gulf War, and Iraq was ordered to pay what at the time was a, a enormous burden. It was multiple times of their GDP, which had collapsed following sanctions in the 1990s, and it was really uh, set up via a legal structure at the UN. Uh, and and was uh, codified into a mechanism which was called uh, the UNCC uh, under the under the UN umbrella, which had authority to directly take money from the Iraqi oil petroleum revenues. In the early on, it was thirty percent, was later reduced to twenty five, and then five uh, percent after after two thousand three. But what in essence made it it was that reparations ended up being senior liabilities or senior in the debt structure of Iraq. And you really needed a UN resolution, which uh, had to go through a veto in the Security Council to change it. So after the US and the coalition partners agreed, we need to uh, do a debt restructuring, they start to look at all this debt, which, you know, uh, various kinds of of sovereign debts, but all within the umbrella of we can do this. And then they look at war reparations and they see that it is actually senior debts in the sense that uh, first they have to change the whole legal structure at the UN just to uh, change it. And then second, well, it has already been awarded for damages to mostly Kuwait persons and and businesses, and it was paid out uh, automatically. So it it had all the all the hallmarks of this is going to be an enormous political undertaking with many veto blocks, uh, which is why it essentially was was left out. So, Simon, th- this uh, leads very nicely to one of my big questions about all of this, and which is how in the world uh, did the UN become such a key actor? in this sovereign debt restructuring. So my experience over the last 20, 25 years in studying debt restructurings tells me that the UN is at most a marginal player. The the key player is the IMF. And then uh, the big finance ministries around the world, especially the French finance ministry uh, with the Paris Club. But in Iraq, the UN was crucial and particularly the Security Council. And I'm wondering whether that 
is was a product of this uh, holdover war reparations uh, issue. They they had to deal with the war reparations, and so then they took on the job of figuring out a way to do the restructuring. Is that the story? Uh, I think maybe partly, but mainly it's a story of the UN being the governing body to which the US and the coalition partners tried to legitimize the invasion. So it was already at the UN that the initial discussions of invasion happened. Uh, U.S., especially the U.K., tried to legitimize it through various uh, resolutions. And because the political discussion, at least uh, before, the, before the invasion occurred at the U.N., it made it a natural starting point for some of the high-level discussions of how to do a sovereign debt restructuring. Now, those discussions ended up being very important because the initial deal at the UN uh, required certain immunizations of assets, which I'm sure we'll get to, but it, it, that was really a, a political decision. Uh, and, and, you know, all sovereign debt restructurings are inherently political. And this was just the first step at which that decision was taken. So uh, the IMF and the Paris Club and uh, all the banks and the lawyers came later and were still part of it, but they operated under an umbrella of there is massive political unity to trying to get this done. And that was at the UN. And that's very rare that you see such agreement from a large group of creditors who actually owed money. And, and you had alluded to what is, in some ways, I think the most innovative attribute of the Iraq debt restructuring, which is the UN resolution immunizing oil-related assets. And I'm wondering, first of all, if you can give um, just a little overview of that, but also some something of the backstory and why that wound up at the UN. My kind of parochial approach to it would be to say that this is the kind of thing where you really only need two or maybe three or four key jurisdictions, particularly the United States and United Kingdom, to say Iraq's you know, oil-related assets are going to be immune in our courts. And that would pretty much give you everything that you needed. And yet here we have the UN initially being the body to pass the, the resolution. Can you sort of give some explanation for why it winds up being um, uh, something that the UN is, is taking on? Yeah, so it's important to remember that Iraq defaulted back in the early 80s. So the mountain of debts that Iraq had coming out of Saddam Hussein's fall was uh, very big and they had a lot of creditors who had already attached uh, or tried to try to get judgments and attach assets all over the world. Iraq was especially vulnerable to this sort of legal techniques because it obtained uh, over 90% uh, of its fiscal revenues from oil sales. And a lot of those oil sales at one point or another flows through a jurisdiction mainly in the US or the UK. Now, when the US uh, and its partners started to talk about how are we going to structure the post 
invasion governments and polity. Uh, they came up with the, the resolution that sort of did away with the food for oil program, set up the interim government and had this clause that Iraqi oil assets were to be immunized. The way they did it was that all savings were actually held at the central bank, but they uh, came up with this called the Iraqi Development Fund, which was then codified into US law by executive power. The UN just passed a resolution saying we would like all of our members to do this. In the US, it was uh, done by our ex executive order. And they, uh, they really needed to do this because there already were a lot of orders against Iraq, especially the commercial creditors, which I think uh, we'll get to in a minute, but uh, they had already sued and uh, had in, in many cases won, but these uh, old loans had really just been lying still for a, a very long time, uh, all the way through the, through the sanction periods. So the UN was really the, the political meeting point. And from there, because there was political will in all of the coalition powers, it was then put into law by uh, executive powers and uh, thereon flowed and made the whole thing uh, a lot easier. But who, so who provided the impetus for getting the the issue raised at the UN? So I'm I'm still confused because it seems to me like the United States can do this on its own. The UK can do it on its own, and most of the countries who are gonna cast a vote at the UN and who would presumably follow through as a matter of their own domestic law. Like most of them frankly don't matter because they're not where the creditors are gonna go. So, so was this something that the US government wanted as sort of a form of political cover? Is there some other backstory? I think the answer to that is yes, but I have been unable to find proof. The best I have been able to do is that it was always part of early drafts of resolution uh, 1483. And even in the early drafts, the immunization was part of it. Now, why might that be? Well, none of the lawyers who were involved in the sovereign debt restructuring or the bankers know the backstory or have been able to find it, which leads me to believe that this was very much a political decision. Where it came and who pushed it, uh, I don't know. But I imagine that there were quite a few uh, energy or weapon sectors, which might want to do business at some point in Iraq, who would be very keen to have this in place so that they could actually do business with them. Because if there was no immunization in place, it would be very hard to enforce contracts and make sure that the money was actually delivered. Obviously, the US government at the time was uh, quite heavily influenced by the uh, energy sector. Uh, they also benefited immensely from this strategy, especially because they were keen to get in and be part of oil exploration. But it, it's honestly the, the closest thing I've been able to, to come to it. Uh, no one seems to know why it was there, uh, but there was very strong pediments to, to keeping it in. And in terms of it sort of flew under the cover because the resolution that legitimized the Iraqi invasion uh, at least at the UN, was so hotly debated in so many different strands that uh, immunizing oil revenues might just have flown under the radar, so to speak, uh, and and no one really really uh, know how to 
how it how it started, at least in the sovereign debt world. So um, this this is fascinating, and uh, I, I know we should probably go on to other aspects, but I want I want to um, ask more about this. You in in your research, you talk to a number of the key actors, and my experience with these restructurings is that the people who tend to be involved are not shy about asking or demanding credit for coming up with innovative techniques. And as it is arguable that the Iraqi debt restructuring, even though there were many aspects of what happened in Iraq that were disastrous, the restructuring was brilliantly done. One of the most uh, severe uh, restructurings and successful ones. And yet nobody wants credit. This is, um, I, I, I just, I find it so hard that people don't want to be in the history books. This, this suggests to me that there is some mystery here that's worth the Hollywood movie. I mean, it might be that someone is going to listen to this podcast now and come out of the woodworks. Might also be that I haven't done uh, done my research in the sense that I, I'm. It was very easy to talk to the lawyers and the bankers and the economists. Uh, but it's much harder to talk to the national security state, who are much less forthcoming in terms of claiming credits. Uh, but it was quite easy, to be honest, to to get people to talk, and I think that was the reason that you alluded to, which is that out of the many disastrous policies and outcomes that occurred after the US invasion, the restructuring was arguably the most successful of all those. And the people involved uh, were all very happy to try to, uh, you know, put their stamp on, on what made this successful, uh, which I, I think it was. Uh, I argue that there, are, there were different policy choices you could make, but in terms of getting debt relief very quickly for a very large group of very diverse creditors, it's, it was definitely successful. So before we take our break, um, I'm wondering, Simon, if you can just set up a topic I, I think we are going to want to come back to after our break, which is the question of why there wasn't more of a push to write off a big chunk of the Iraqi debt under the doctrine of odious debt. Uh, maybe doctrine is a bit too fancy a word for it, since I think, um, I don't know your view, me too, and I tend to be skeptical that it the doctrine exists as a, as a legal doctrine. But nonetheless, can you lay just the groundwork for what the argument was that a lot of this debt was odious? And then maybe after break, we can talk about um, why the odious debt argument wound up not going anywhere. Yeah, so the doctrine of state succession is one of the, one of the international laws that is quite adhered to, i.e. that governments adhere both the assets and the liabilities of the previous government, despite having political and philosophical differences. Now, the doctrine of odious debt were it to exist would be a change to this, i.e. that a new government would not recognize the previous government's debt because the debt was taken in ill faith and not for the good of the citizens. 
And one of the arguments that is about Iraq is that all of the debt was political war debt that was raised for the personal benefit of Saddam Hussein and a covert war to which the Iraqi people was not really part of or benefited from. Uh, now, that didn't end up happening, uh, but the, the arguments were, were quite strong. Um, and uh, after the break, I'm very happy to talk you through uh, why I think the uh, sovereign debt restructuring went ahead as a standard debt restructuring involving the Treasury and the IMF rather than a new overview or mechanism which would have codified the doctrine of odious debt into international law. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take a short break. So Simon, thank you for introducing the topic of odious debt, because I, I think that's uh, that's an important one that I know we wanted to spend a little bit of time on. But can you um can you to start us off here in the second half, just give the account of why the odious debt argument wound up going nowhere you had, you had sort of teased us with that at the at the the end of the first half so i actually think it went quite far compared to most other attempts to do odious debts we do have a few you know they tried it in ecuador in 08 it was a parliamentary report in greece but other than that, it's very hard because the institutions who run sovereign debt restructurings in general have a set of procedures that they like. And by institutions, I mean IMF, Treasury, all the bankers, all the lawyers involved know how to uh, come together, usually at the Paris Club, and, and do a deal. Now... Because the debt was so old and under such suspect circumstances, there was actually a, quite a big push from outside of these institutions to try and write off all the debts. So you had Jubilee uh, debt movements. Uh, you had very big, uh, very big uh, social movement uh, inside Iraq who pushed for full write-off, and you had uh, quite a few academics and think tank people who provided the intellectual arguments to, to do this. And the arguments very much came from non-participants uh, non in most other sovereign debt restructuring. So inside the US government, odious debt argument was pushed by the Pentagon, not by the treasury. Now, the reason it didn't end up going anywhere is that ultimately what was important was that there was a big debt write-off which you could get through a standard debt restructuring. There was massive agreement to get behind a very harsh deal on creditors at the Paris Club. You had the immunization agreement at the UN and then in the US, which meant that you essentially could go to commercial creditors and say, take it or leave it, because if you don't take it, you cannot sue until this order expires and we expect that it will be for a very long time. And all these loans are small, uh, small, all of them. And they are only big if you aggregate them all up and it's going to be very hard to actually purchase all these and do litigation, which meant that, you know, the vulture funds that you normally see in sovereign debt restructuring, they didn't really materialize. 
So it, it was really that you could get to the outcome in another way, uh, which is why it, at the end, you know, the, the, especially the treasury and the IMF and the, and the lawyers and the bankers were very keen to do a standard debt restructuring that did not all of a sudden have a, a new doctrine which could be used maybe in at later dates. So Simon, I, I'm gonna ask you a version of the question that I asked before about the intellectual history of the immunity shield. I'm curious about the players who were involved in the enthusiasm about odious debts and in killing the, the odious debt proposal. So I have heard, um, through uh, good sources uh, after they had been applied with drink um, say that the president of the United States himself was very enamored of the odious debt idea and thought it should be used and that there were US senators like I may be getting this wrong, uh, but I know, so I, I think one of them was a very conservative senator from North Carolina, where Mark and I live, uh, Jesse Helms, who I don't normally think of as progressive, but I think was tied to a number of church groups that wanted uh, debt relief. And so there, and, and, um, so there really was a, just a lot of political muscle if these people uh, were pushing for this, and then I would imagine, and I, I, if I remember correctly, there was, there were papers that came out from the Cato Institute or maybe the Heritage Foundation talking about odious debt and maybe Wolfowitz was interested and then it gets killed. And one of the kill blows actually comes through a paper uh, sponsored by the UN uh, that is very dismissive almost in a contemptuous way of all these sort of NGO ideas. When I go back and read that paper now, I think, oh my goodness, they, they really wanted to stomp this out, but the IMF uh, was not supportive. And so you, you've been reluctant to name names, but I, I want to know the individuals involved. Uh, and you know, now uh, Michael Kramer, who was one of the originators of the sort of the resuscitated uh, sovereign uh, odious debt idea has won a Nobel prize. Yeah, and it's one of those, it's very hard to piece together because the people involved have wildly different views on what happened. So, if you talk to people who were on the ground in Iraq and who were involved with parts of the National Security Council, I get the sense that it was not discussed at all. If you read Wolfowitz and Secretary Snow of the Treasury uh, at the time, it seemed like there were overtures in that direction. And uh, you definitely had a Cato Institute involved, uh, lots of think tanks, you know, the, the, the on the ground movement, especially in Iraq, uh, was pretty big. And then all of a sudden, uh, it goes the other way. Now, uh, if, from the way that I've heard the story is that it was actually uh, at a meeting early on between 
the initial players, IMF and the Treasury and the White House, where the White House had this idea, uh, but it was quickly killed by uh, by the by the IMF and the Treasury. Now, it, even this story might not be true because, as you say, it's very hard to piece together. And some people didn't hear about it at all. And some people said it played a very big role. So I, the honest answer, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that if you asked everyone involved, they would have different views. Uh, also, depending on how close they were to the intellectual arguments. Um, but very hard to piece together. Uh, and, and we might not know who was the actual one pulling the trigger. But it was discussed at very high levels. That far, I'm, I'm quite willing to go. Uh, but who killed it in the end? I actually don't know. Doesn't it strike you as somewhat odd that there were so many people within the U.S. government who took an interest in this? I mean, as I think about the debt stock, which you you sort of beautifully lay out in in the one of your papers on this, you know, it's not um, it's not at all obvious how you could segregate out the parts of Iraq's debt that sort of fall into some standard doctrinal definition of odious debt. You know, the the lenders are complicit in a loan that the the you know political leaders are taking just to line their own pockets or to oppress the population. You know, the sort of standard definition. Kind of hard to segregate those loans from just the bulk or at least a significant component of Iraqi debt that the U.S. government was actively pushing, wasn't it? Like, I'm, don't you find it odd that this was something that caught so many people's fancy? Yes, but I also think it did come from outside the normal channels. So uh, as you did talk about, there was the whole church and religious movement who thought of this as an ethical consideration and then there was the pentagon people who wanted the invasion to be successful and if you could write off all the debt that might be the best way to institute what they at the time and i'm going to use air quotes called free markets uh, but you end up with a story where uh, it is very hard to do in practice and I'm quite willing to say that the reason it was killed was that the practical consideration were just not as easy as doing a standard restructuring, which you could get a very good outcome. And while they didn't end up going for odious debt overall, especially on the commercial side, they did retain the willingness to declare uh, individual loans or uh, creditors uh, odious which uh, they did for, for certain parts of the commercial restructuring when they did the reconsider, uh, reconsideration, yeah. So, uh, Simon, uh, in the interest of time, although I, I'd, I, I'd love to hear you hear more about the details of all these fascinating people you talked to, uh, um, in the interest of time, I want to bring our conversation around to more contemporary matters. And my sense is that, you know, we are potentially facing 
a large number of sovereign defaults as a function of the costs of COVID. And right now the markets seem to be lending with abandon to anybody who wants money. Uh, but I worry that that's a function of the easy money system that the European Central Bank and the Fed have put in place. Now, if we have that kind of situation, how plausible do you think it is that the kind of political uh, compromise or agreement that we saw with Iraq where the members of the Security Council, including uh, China and Russia, uh, cooperated so seamlessly with the United States. How likely is it that they could reproduce uh, th this mechanism if we needed, say, a global immunity shield as a function of, uh, to deal with the COVID fallout? I think we have an answer in the attempts that have been tried over the last year both the DSSI, where interest rate payments were essentially stopped for everyone who wanted, and the common framework came out of the G20 end of last year. And it is very hard to get people to agree to anything when you don't have that many remedies or sticks to get people to actually put up the money. This is obviously made even harder by the fact that you, know, you have a very large creditor in China who is going to be much more involved than they were during Iraq. And even during Iraq, China was sort of difficult because they said that they would restructure in 2007. They didn't really end up restructuring until uh, seven years later because many of the loans were given through development banks. And this is only going to compound because we have uh, several, both restructurings coming up and potential, uh, potential countries facing, facing troubles in the next few years. Uh, if we look at Zambia, you know, China is a pretty big creditor. You have uh, Angola, same thing. You have Eurobond creditors, you have other bilateral institutions. And the problem is always if you make a deal with one, it is so much better for the people who hold out. And unless you have this immunity shield, it is going to be very hard. But how people are going to come together and agree to an immunization, uh, it, it's very very hard because the jurisdictions, the political pressure, you don't really have the same agreement and coordination as you had in the UN. It's now spread over so many different ones. So a good example is uh, Pakistan who have very few euro bonds outstanding. They have a lot of bilateral loans, which means that they can make deals that are not really shown to the outside world. So they can do quiet negotiations. They can uh, either restructure, reschedule, reprofile. And all of that can happen without the Eurobond investors necessarily really being asked. Now, if you come to an agreement with China 
say, with Pakistan, then go to Paris Club, then you, you sort of need to have an okay from uh, creditors to say, we will take a deal that we were not really part of and helped negotiate. And how you get people to actually sign that, uh, it's going to be uh, very difficult. So, you know, uh, understanding that I think the, the template that Iraq produced is quite good, but it was very strong political pressure points that made it actually work. And right now we have so many diverging views that I think we're going to see some messy restructurings uh, coming up in, in many parts of the world. And so maybe that's a good a good point to sort of bring this episode to a close. And I wonder, Simon, if as we do, you can give us a preview of how you think um, it could be a Zambian restructuring. I mean, Sri Lanka raised some of the, the uh, related issues in terms of uh, coordinating with Chinese lending. In some ways, these seem like relatively simple debt stocks with uh, just a different type of coordination problem than we've experienced in the past in the sense that, you know, the the boundary between who counts as an official creditor and who counts as a non-official private creditor has gotten very fuzzy, um, especially with with some of the lending from state-owned enterprises in China. So do you really think this is going to be um, uh, uh, especially difficult series of restructurings? Or, or do you think maybe there's some, some a possibility that we are overblowing the complexity here? I think very much it depends on how the institutions will take this. If you do see both China, G20, Paris Club come together, I think they could pressure the private sector to, to get involved. I also think you saw the template of what was, I would say, pretty successful uh, preemptive restructuring in Ecuador last year, where you upfront uh, signal quite uh, well in advance what it is that you are probably likely going to do and you get private sector involvement. And as you saw, it was actually, I'd say successful. Um, but those cases are there and I'm sure there will be some clean restructurings. Uh, you'll also have some very non-clean one of which the main one is going to be Lebanon. But Lebanon has the problem that it has no money and if it tries to restructure its debt, then it will also have no financial system. Uh, but some of the, uh, I think it's one of those, it's going to be a great time for restructuring connoisseurs, but uh, sadly, uh, maybe not so much for the, for the people on the ground, um, because some of them are going to be quite easy, quite clean. And especially if they are taken up front, I think you can get pretty good buy from a lot of people. Uh, but if you are pushed, it can be very messy and it's going to be uh, politically, uh, politically contentious as well. See, Zambia is starting to talk about a restructuring now, but uh, they probably can't do this on, on this side of the election, which means that you end up pushing it, uh, which uh, means that holdouts get more concentrated, which is never good if you want to avoid a messy fight. So uh, uh, maybe is the answer, I think. It will be uh, fascinating to, to follow.
Well, thank you so much, Simon. I hope this is the first of many visits to our podcast that you do since one of the aspects of your current existence that we didn't really explicitly talk about is that you actually invest in sovereign debt and know a lot about what's going on in the contemporary markets. So I am hoping next time we will transition from your academic work on Iraq to what's going on with the markets uh, as, as a function of the restructurings after COVID-19. And maybe we won't have any restructurings. Maybe this is the new normal and uh, I can't forget, what's that theory that says that governments should just uh, you know, borrow and borrow and borrow and there's no end that some economists seem to be uh, touting. I, I, I can't, maybe for in good reasons, I have forgotten it. But um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Simon, for coming on our podcast. No, thanks for having me.